0: Thank you, praise team, and thank you for being a part of that praise team. It's not just the people up front that are praise team; it's everyone who is singing and worshiping the Lord from the heart. Kindergarten through third grade are dismissed for junior church. I think Pastor Peter is in the back there waiting. Somebody is uh, said. That you would take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter nineteen. Exodus chapter nineteen. I've entitled the sermon this morning, At the Right Time. I take that title from, not from Exodus, but I take it from Romans chapter 5 in verse 6. And I'm going to just look at uh, four verses there uh, to give you a background and let you know where I'm coming from uh, for the rest of the sermon. It says in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, it says, While we were still, still hopeless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice those two things. We were helpless and ungodly. And then it goes on in verse 7 to say, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then. Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. If you've noticed, there are four things there that are a real problem. They separate us from God. First, it says we were helpless. There is nothing at all that we can ever do on our own to ever be right with God or gain God's favor. Just not possible to do that. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, while we were ungodly. That is, we were without God. We did not know God, and many of us could have cared less. But it doesn't end there, because then it says, while we were still sinners... A sinner is one who misses the mark. Everything we did just didn't work. It missed the target of the glory of God. But there's one left, and that's the last one. It says, even while we were enemies, while we were enemies, fighting against him, Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is he died on the cross and made reconciliation with him. That's what... uh, Will was talking about a little bit ago, making it possible that we could go from being enemies to friends of God through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. But how do you come to these conclusions? One of the things that we look at is the Old Testament law. Now, we're not going to talk about the law today. In fact, is next week, I'm not going to chapter 20. I'm going to actually take a break and we're going to talk about. What is the difference between living under grace or in the church age and living under the law? We're going to look at that because truth of the matter is there are a lot of principles in the law that are still true today, and they were true before the law, but we do not live under the law. Under the law is a real problem because guess what? Under the law, we're still helpless, we're still ungodly, we're still sinners, and we're still enemies with God because the law points out to us how bad we really are. The law, I like to say it this way, the law made sin exceedingly sinful. And the law showed us that there is no way we can ever be good enough to come to God. In fact, is when you get to the book of Galatians, it says that the law is a schoolmaster or a tutor to lead us to Christ. It gets us to the point where we realize there's nothing we can do. We're helpless. And then we have to come, by grace, through faith, to Jesus Christ. But when was it? At the right time. Born under the law, born of a woman, at the right time, Christ died for us, and he came and was born. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. So, at the right time. God does everything at the right time. Yesterday, some of you, and thank you all of you that helped with the tractor pull. Uh, if nothing else, I thought I started thinking about this. If the tractor pull ministry doesn't do anything, it at least gives me sermon illustrations if nothing else. Uh, but yesterday it was a really good day. I got woken up at five thirty with the first phone call are you having the tractor pull today? Because all around us, it was raining. And we have guys that come two and a half hours to come to Garden Chapel to come to our tractor pull. And they're getting ready at 530 in the morning, starting to load their tractors. And They're like, hey, it's raining here. Is the tractor pull still on? I'm like, I checked the weather. I checked the radar. I checked everything. And, oh, by the way, it's not raining here. Boy, did I eat my words within a few minutes. That drizzle started coming down. Then it was a little bit of a rain. Then it stopped. Then it started again. And I'm like, Lord, I, we need a window of opportunity. Can you give us a window of opportunity? I never prayed that it wouldn't rain. I just pray a window of opportunity. Well, guess what? The Lord is really, really gracious. Up until Jacob stood up to give a gospel presentation and his testimony. And By the way, uh, Jacob did a great job of making clear the gospel. I just told him this before the service. He didn't know this before. But right near the end of the poll, a guy walked up to Dave Lamb and said, you know, that young man that was talking about hell, he says, I don't want to go to hell either. And so Dave had opportunity to talk to him. And I don't know that he got saved, but guess what? He was listening. And Dave's like, I am so glad Jacob was willing to even mention that there's a hell, because most people nowadays won't even mention hell. And so at least one guy, I know there's more than that, but at least one guy was listening and understood hell is a place you don't want to go to. And so we'll have additional opportunities. But if Jacob got up, the rain went away, and it didn't rain the whole time. It was supposed to rain at three o'clock in the afternoon, praise the Lord. It didn't rain then. I don't know when it started raining last night, but God gave us a window of opportunity at the right time. I will be honest. I'm going to be honest. About 10 o'clock, I was going, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do here. This is just not really good. At the right time. That's the cool thing. God doesn't give us what we don't need when we don't need it. He only gives us what we need when we need it. In this case, in the book of Exodus, and we're in chapter 19 now, the children of Israel didn't need some external restraint because, let's face it, they just spent 400 years in Egypt. Egypt had it under control. In fact, they were controlling the Hebrews. They were in bondage. They were enslaved. And uh, they're out on their own. They now need to govern themselves. They need to see very clearly what God's demands are. And so God is going to give them the law, but he's going to do it different, and I'll get to this in a few minutes, different than I would ever counsel you to do. You might want to think about that. They're no longer slaves. (laughs) They weren't a grateful, thankful people that were not slaves anymore and God provides. No, they grumbled and they they were rebellious and they did all of those things. But as they got out of there, uh, God says, okay, it's the right time. I'm going to do something new, something I hadn't done before. I am going to give them a very precise set of rules and regulations. We call it the law. It's more than the Ten Commandments. Picking up at verse 1. They they just came out of Israel, it's three months later, and they are now not at the mountain range of Horeb or Sinai, they are now at the actual mountain peak in Sinai, where they are going, or Moses in particular, is going to meet with God, and God's going to meet with Moses. They're right there at the base of that mountain peak. And so it says in verse 3, Moses went up to God, and God called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Now notice, Jacob and Israel, they're the same person, right? Mostly. Think about this. He was born Jacob. So as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, he is Jacob. The deceiver, the supplanter, the one who grasps the heel. Not a really nice guy that you went on for your brother. Just ask Esau, and he will tell you. Don't ask Esau. He was kind of the same way. But uh, he was changed. His name was changed, and he's now Israel. That had to do with a spiritual context. Here's the deal. Why did God use Jacob and Israel both in the same sentence, even though they're the same guy? One has to do with bloodline, a genealogy. Even today, there are Jewish people who are Jewish because they were born into a Jewish uh, family. But there are also people, whether they were born into a Jewish family or not, who are Jewish by religion. Uh, uh, They're religious Jews. Both of them. Guess what? What God is going to do here doesn't have to do with us. And it didn't have to do with people before them. Has to do with a very specific nation he is officially going to acknowledge them as a nation. I believe they became a nation maybe a little before this, when they went out of Egypt. But at this point, they're going to be seen by God very specifically as a nation, bloodline as well as spiritually. And so he uses both of those names as he addresses them. And as I said, the law is not universal, even though the principles of the law are universal. We don't live under the law. We'll talk about that next week. But then he says, Israel, I want you to look back. I want you to see what I have done in the past. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice Everything good that happened with them was done for them by God. That is true of all of us. Reconciliation, redemption, salvation. God is the one that that initiates all of it. He says, did you look back and see what I did with the Egyptians? I decimated their economy. I took away their power. I totally obliterated the Egyptian army overwhelmed them with water, and drowned them all. I saved you from them over and over again. fact is, the Amalekites came along, and I saved you from them, too. And then he says, I bore you up on eagles' wings. Now, you may have heard some uh, antidotal things of eagles' wings and all that. I looked them up, and I couldn't find any validity there. So, you go, well, so what does it mean? Here's what I came up with. It's pretty straightforward. If you see an eagle or any kind of hawk, they come down, they swoop down, they get a rabbit, a fish, whatever it is, and they swoop back up. They got a hold of it, and it's not getting out. And it's also, it takes them over the problem. And that's exactly what God is saying to them. I came down, and I plucked you out, and I lifted you and took you above the circumstances. Did it over and over again. That's what God has done for them. So they don't have to guess about that. They don't have to guess that God is a good God and a righteous God and and a God who is powerful. They can simply look at their history. And he says, to them, look back, look what I have done for you. You have no reason not to trust me. And that's a really important statement because we're going to see what happens here in the future. Because he says, starting in verse 5, he says, I'm going to give you an obligation. And you're going to need to agree with it. He says, verse 5, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Wow. That's a pretty clear statement. You're going to be different than all the rest of them. Now, this is not the law. The law doesn't come till the next chapter. But he is asking them ahead of time to agree with what he's going to bring to them. I would never counsel you to enter into any contract, covenant, or vow if you did not know the specifics. A few of you will remember a few years ago... uh, and it happened to be politicians, no names mentioned here, but it's like you have to vote on the bill, and then you can read it later to see what's in it. I don't care. If you, if you sign a contract like that, you're crazy. I mean, you don't know what you're getting in for. Now, I, I would tell you, don't sign a contract with me. I will never purposely try to deceive you or lie to you, but you know what? You better read the contract first. Because I may be thinking different than you. Not trying to deceive you, but I may be thinking differently. I definitely wouldn't sign a contract with a politician. Sorry, there's good ones. But you know what? They have an agenda. I'm not going to do that. So I would never encourage you to do any of those things. I I wouldn't encourage you to say, I do to someone who you don't know. And don't know how they think and how they operate and what they believe and all those kinds. I would never tell you to do that. But God says, you can trust me. Why can you trust me? Because I've already proven myself. I know who I am. I have taken you out on the wings of eagles with power. I have proven over and over again that I'm bigger than circumcised, and I have proven that I am faithful and I will always be true, and I am loving and gracious and merciful, and I will never do anything to harm you. You can indeed trust me. Well, guess what? They were actually willing to do that. And so uh, they do indeed confirm that, yes, we will do what God has asked us to do. We will agree ahead of time that uh, we will do what God asks us to do. And notice he said, you will be a possession among the people. All the earth is mine he says, you're going to be a nation set aside from all the other nations. Now, I, I try to keep a little bit of a pulse on what's going around the world. My wife keeps a big pulse on, on what's going around. And you would go, well, in the world today, it's United States, China, Russia, you know, the, big, the biggies. Well, you know what? I propose to you that the hotspot of all the earth is still a little tiny nation in the Middle East called Israel. Why? Because God said Israel is set apart from all the others. It's a small nation. but Boy, does it have the clout that goes around, because God says, they're my people. And believe me, there are a lot of people that would like to do away with them. They've, it's always been that way, and it's going to continue. And he said, not only uh, will you be my nation, But I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests are those that have the privilege and responsibility of bringing people to God. And he says, as a whole nation, you have a job. Your job is to be a light to the rest of the nations and bring them to God. Unfortunately, Israel hasn't done that. Now, we believe in the priesthood of all believers because that's what the New Testament says. So it's a little bit different. We're not Levitical priests or anything like that. Neither were these people at this point. That hadn't even happened yet. Point is, they had a responsibility, and we have a responsibility. And, folks, I am 100% in favor of and behind what we do at Garden Chapel. We support lots of missionaries. We we emphasize missions. We want people to know about Jesus Christ. You know what? As a whole, the church is just pretty much a little like Israel. We are supposed to be priests and bring people to to Christ, but we're kind of lackadaisical about that. And we never should be. They were. Uh, But uh, we have a responsibility as priests to do that. And Israel, not a run-of-the-mill nation. It is very distinct from the rest of the nations. And so Moses comes back down, and I'm in verse 7, then Moses came and called the elders of the people. The elders is not a particular office, they are just older and more mature people. I kind of think, cannot prove this, but I kind of think they may be parts of that, remember from last chapter when Jethro came and said, hey Moses, this is too big for you, you ought to have somebody in charge of thousands and hundreds and tens, that kind of thing. I think this might be some of the people that kind of rose to the top the cream of the crop and they were more mature and more responsible people and Moses called them together and he set before them it says the all the words that the Lord had commanded and then it seems that the elders went and that's why I think this all filtered out and they went and informed the rest of the people now look at verse 8 this is this is probably the key in the whole chapter all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They confirmed it. All they know is, all they've confirmed is, We will obey and we will do what God asked us to do. They don't know the specifics. But you do know God. Think about this. When you got saved, did you know what your Christian life was going to look like? You may have known a lot of things from the Bible, but you would never been there before. Faith takes God at His word and allows God to bring the results. Why? Because we trust Him. He alone is trustworthy. I get a thing called ministry watch. Believe me. Do not blindly follow Christian leaders. What a disaster. By the way, I'm not even encouraging you to read it because it might make a lot of you depressed. Because the corruption and the... The graft and the, uh, just immorality and stuff that that's going on in the church today is just crazy. You know what? Can't trust Christian leaders. Can't trust politicians. Can't trust individuals. Even your best friend will let you down. But guess what? You can trust God, and that's what they said. They said, "What the God has said, we will do." And then Moses. Being the in-between, he turns around and goes back to God, and Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now, they're going to meet with God. God is going to interact with them in a way that he never had before. doesn't mean God hadn't interacted with them. Obviously, we just read about the Exodus, and God is interacting with Moses and Aaron and the people on a regular basis. But now it's going to be stepped up, and I don't mean just because they went to the top of Sinai. It's going to be stepped up because it's going to get more specific as we look at. There is dealing with an issue. Here it's dealing with life in general. And that's where this goes. Verse 9, Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you, and they may believe in you forever. Moses had already been designated as God's spokesman. Now God himself is saying, do this because I want the people to respect you. You're my spokesman. They need to listen to you. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't take away from God, and it doesn't make Moses some wonderful, wonderful person. It's just simply Moses has a very respectable position, and when he carries it out, God wants people to listen to him and take him seriously. And and that's what it says here, and uh, that they will believe in you forever. Let's face it. A lot of the quotes in the New Testament are from Moses. You know, we look back, and when we have principles that we want to apply, we go back and, hey, this is what happened in Moses' day. We we continue to do that. We go back to all of those things. We call the law the Mosaic law. It's not Moses' law, but he's the lawgiver. He's the, the one that gives it to the people. God is the lawgiver, not Moses. So he said... Go to the people and consecrate them. Consecrate simply is the same as sanctified or dedicated. He says it's really something set apart. He says, go down and to the people and consecrate uh, them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Now, I don't know that the big deal is that if you're going to worship God and meet with God, that you need to make sure you did your laundry the day before and you got you know, something clean on. Uh, I think everybody appreciates if we do those kinds of things, but uh, it is an outward kind of thing because concentra- consecration cannot be seen because it's something in the mind and the heart of a person. But the outside, you can see something physical. I would compare this somewhat, I, just somewhat, with baptism. You cannot see when someone trusted Christ, because they literally die with Christ, were buried with Christ, and raised with Christ. You cannot, you cannot see that. But in baptism, you were having an outward identification and mirroring what happened spiritually. I think that's kind of the same thing that's happening here. And so he just wants them to have that outward thing. And then He goes on and and says, okay, three days from now, uh, you're going to come back and um, you're going to be meeting with me. But in the meantime, no one is allowed to touch the mountain. You can go up to the mountain, to the base of the mountain, but you're not allowed to go on to the mountain. There's a reason for it. He says, if somebody does that, you shall kill them. This is serious business, folks. See, God is holy, and He is so much above. You're going to see why I'm I'm emphasizing this in a moment. And we are not. We are what Romans chapter 5 said we are. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. That's what He says. And God is none of those things. He's completely blameless, holy, without stain, without spot. Just above and beyond everything else. And there's such a great chasm there. That's why only Jesus Christ can fulfill that. And he said, if someone or an animal actually does go onto the mountain, you can't even go up to them and choke them to kill them. You can't grow up and grab their toga and stab them. You're not even allowed to touch them. Now, I don't know why, but I'm using my sanctified imagination here. It's because that person's been contaminated. They've done something God said don't do. And if you touch them, maybe it's going to contaminate you. Don't quote me on that. That's my opinion. Uh, but they, you either shoot them through with an arrow or maybe throw a spear through them or stone them. But you weren't even allowed to touch them because they had tried to come into the presence of a holy God their own way against God's express will. And so uh, they just weren't allowed to do that. And then he said, oh, by the way, this is verse 15, be prepared and don't go near a woman. Now, if you're married, you have have all the privileges and responsibilities of marriage. But he says, I'm going to meet with you and don't go near your wife. Don't get near a woman. Boy, that is pretty personal and intimate, isn't it? I'm going, Lord, why in the world? I, I, I was ra- wrestling with this. I almost said wrestling with this. But uh, anyway, uh, for a while this week when I was studying, and I'm like, why? And I think I realized what it is. It's because there are some things that look really spiritual over here. And you need to deal with those. And there are some things you can see on the outside, uh, like washing your clothes. But then there are those other things that are not necessarily wrong they can be a distraction. When you're having a relationship with God, everything else has to make way. I think that's why. You might have a better explanation, but that's the best one I can come up with, is God said, when I meet with you, I want you to be totally uh, undistracted. I don't want anything to be between us. Isn't that really cool? Well, anyway, let's continue on. And it says, the third day was morning, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. And then all the people who were in the camp tremble. I looked at that and I said, oh, I know, this is the word for fear. I've preached on this many times before. The word fear means uh, fear, but it also means reverence or in awe of. So I looked it up just to make sure, boy, am I glad I did Because it is not that word. It literally means to be terrorized, terrified. Think about this. If God is totally holy and cannot stand sin, you ought to be afraid. You ought to be terrorized by God. Think about that. But God's a loving God. You better believe He is. But without the work of Christ, it's terrifying because none of us meet the standard None of us can come into his presence. If they tried doing their own way, they die. And they were tasked with bringing about that death. So, and, and then look at the, the sound effects. Look at the visual effects. There was smoke. The whole mountain is covered with smoke. Fire descended on it, and it's not California. So I guess we have the haze from the California Fires here. Uh, you know, it's like the smoke of a furnace. And then it says it quaked violently. I've never been in an earthquake, never want to be in one. Then it says the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke and God answered with thunder. Can you imagine? Now, I just said the people were terrified. No kidding. <laughs> the mountain's black smoke, there's fire, it's shaking violently and the trumpet is louder and louder, and then there's thunder on top of that. I'm telling you, when you look at God, you realize, whoa, I don't stand a chance. And then the Lord called down from Sinai from the top of the mountain. He called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Remember, Moses is invited into his presence. The other people are not. And then he says, go down and warn the people. So he walks up the mountain. God says, hey, go down one more time. Why? Because we are thick scald people. It doesn't go through very cl- easily. He says, go down and warn them again. If they think I'm kidding, make sure they know that I'm not kidding about this. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not joking about this. This is serious stuff. See, what God does for us is Always a gift. The Bible says grace. It's something that is given without an expectation of pay. In fact, if there's any expectation of pay, it's not grace. God does for us everything. We are separated from God. What did we say? Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Totally separated. We can't remedy that, but God graciously does it all for us. That gap is closed in Christ. Without Christ, this doesn't make any sense. And we you should be sitting there shaking. It's like, oh, I, 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 can't, I, I can't deal with God. Well, you would be right. But through Christ, we can. And so he told them uh, to come back up and bring Aaron with him and, and all of that. And uh, Moses went down, and, and you know the rest of the story. But I want to end with this. Because God made it clear, if you're coming into my presence, you have to come my way. They came to Jesus in Mark chapter 7. And I'm, going to re- I'm just going to simply read Mark chapter 7, verses 5 to 9. Because there's nothing wrong with tradition. We have tradition. Garden Chapel has traditions. Our family has traditions. A few hours ago, my wife, after the first service, she walked up. By the way, I'll show you something. I have a $20 bill in my wallet. I mean, my pocket. She never gives me $20 except if I'm going down to Georgie's to get pizza for tradition purposes because our kids are going to be at lunch just like they are every Sunday or almost every Sunday. And my wife gives me the money and says, here's the money for the pizza. That's tradition. There's nothing wrong with that. Churches have tradition. We do things certain ways. Nothing wrong. But if it gets in in the way of what God has commanded, it's totally wrong. Then it's religion. It's man's way of trying to get to God or be right with God or to please God. That's always wrong. So listen to what Mark chapter 7 says. The Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? There was nothing in the Bible about eating anyway like that. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That's that's the essence of religion. People ask me, are you religious? I say, no, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I do some religious things because I know what James chapter 1 says. James says, you know, if, if you're a religious person and used in the good sense, the only place it's used in the good sense in the Bible is you're looking out for those that can't look out for themselves, orphans and widows. You control your tongue. You make sure your tongue is not cursing and swearing and using God's name in vain and those kinds of things. And you live a holy life. That's real religion. So, yeah, I'm religious in that way, but not in the sense that I'm trying to please God and be right with God by doing religious things. Big difference between the two. This is is how it ends neglecting the command of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And he was saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the command of God in order to keep your tradition. He didn't say tradition's wrong. Never said that. He simply said, if your tradition usurps the authority of God, the command of God, you're in big trouble with God. I don't care if it's a mountain. I don't care if it's how through Moses or any of the things we talked about today. It is God owns the earth. He said, "All the earth is mine. I made it. It's mine. I get to make the rules." And if you're going to come to me, you have to come my way. That's through Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you're right with God through Jesus Christ, that you have not admitted that you're a sinner. You have not acknowledged that Jesus Christ alone is the one who paid for your sins, redeemed you, took on the wrath of God against sin, and asked Him to save you. You ought to be terrorized. You ought to be sitting there shaking. But nobody has to do that because we can know that we're right with God. We go from enemies to friends. That's what Jesus said. He said, I've called you friends. That's what God wants. It sounds dire, but the whole law is going to say, you cannot do this on your own. It leads us to a dependence on Jesus Christ. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, what a great God you are. Even though you're absolutely holy and we should be in terror of you, we're not. Oh, yeah, we stand in awe, and we reverence you, and we worship you, and we look up to you. But I thank you that in your grace and your love, you sent Jesus Christ to take our place, to make a way for us to come into the presence of an absolutely holy, terrorizing God. Because you loved us, and you did everything that's needed so that we can have that right relationship And that we can not only live here and now for you, but be with you for all eternity. Lord, thank you for reminding us of that. And keep us recognizing what a great God you are. And that whatever you do, you do right at the right time. And we thank you that we can can acknowledge that today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Go with God.